If you like radio that isn't bought and paid for by the usual bad guys, please subscribe to Truth Jihad Radio. You can go to truthjihad.com or you can visit my substack at kevinbarrett.substack.com. Welcome back. This is the second hour of tonight's Truth Jihad Radio. I'm Kevin Barrett, talking about all of the topics that you're not supposed to talk about in polite conversation here in the benighted West. And we're taking on these topics from perspectives that are equally taboo. Well, one topic you're not allowed to talk, one uh, topic you can't talk about in a sympathetic way is the Islamic Revolution in Iran, which is celebrating its 44th anniversary tomorrow. February 11th. And here to talk about that is Zafar Bangash of Crescent International, the world's leading Muslim current events magazine. So, hey, welcome, Zafar. Assalamu alaikum. Wa alaikum salam. Uh, it's my pleasure, Kevin, to be with you. Yes, it's wonderful to have you back. I appreciate your excellent work, and, and you're really at the top of the list of people that I would want to talk about the anniversary of the Islamic Revolution with, and I'm so happy you could be with us on short notice tonight, so thank you so much. Not at all. It's my pleasure. So uh, where where should we start? I guess the Western media portrayal of the uh, Islamic Republic of Iran has been so mendacious and distorted and hostile and weaponized that most Western people really have seen only one grossly distorted side of this issue and have never seen uh, so much of the other side. And it's hard to even know where to start in trying to correct that. Well, let's begin with the coverage of uh, the Western media with respect to the Islamic Republic of Iran. Uh, If I may, uh, it's like uh, a broken record that is stuck At one point, it keeps on repeating uh, the same uh, nonsensical, distorted propaganda against Iran. I recall back in 1979 or even earlier 1978, uh, when the people of Iran had risen up uh, against the Shah's regime, but in essence against America and Israel's domination of Iran, And immediately after the success of the Islamic Revolution, uh, and and in Iran, it's actually, there are 10 days that are celebrated, starting from February the 1st to February the 11th, or the 10 days to February 10th, and then the 11th day uh, is the uh, victory of the Islamic Revolution. And it's referred to as the 10 days of dawn. It's taken from uh, a Quranic ayat, um, Al-Fajr, or a surah. It's named uh, Al-Fajr, that means the dawn. And uh, this obviously refers to the dawn of independence of Iran. And if one goes back to uh, the, the media coverage from that time, uh, there was constant propaganda that this is a, an unstable government. It will not last long. It is run by mullahs who know nothing about statecraft. They should go back to their madrasas and seminaries and concentrate on that, which obviously is a Western view of religion, which has nothing to do with Islam at all. And soon thereafter, 
after the victory of the Islamic Revolution in Iran when uh, this vicious campaign of assassination of top leaders of Iran started, then with every assassination there would be more screaming headlines and uh, outrageously uh, provocative statements on television uh, predicting the collapse of the Islamic Republic within a matter of days. This uh, was not only a deliberate distortion, but it also reflected the Western uh, media's own perception of how governments are established. So I'm 100% sure that if uh, the number of leaders in Iran, and these included, uh, for instance, uh, uh, one attack in which 72 members of uh, the Islamic Republic, uh, Republic Party were martyred, including the chief justice, five ministers, 29 members of parliament, and other leading figures, and then it was followed soon thereafter by uh, an attack on the current leader, um, Sayyid Ali Khamenei, who was not the leader at the time. Uh, he was in the Defense Council. Uh, he was badly wounded uh, on, in, a, in a bomb explosion planted in a tape recorder. And then uh, in uh, August of 1981, uh, the president, the prime minister, and one other person were assassinated in the presidency when a bomb was planted over there. Now, if those kinds of uh, assassinations had been carried out, for instance, in the United States or Britain, the number of leading figures killed, I am absolutely convinced that these uh, regimes would have collapsed uh, because these regimes are basically oligarchic in nature. Uh, they don't have any depth or support among the people. But as far as uh, the Islamic Republic of Iran is concerned, it has overwhelming uh, support of its people, uh, despite the fact that it has suffered uh, so many sanctions. There are, in fact, something like 1,600 different types of U.S. sanctions that have been imposed uh, on Iran since 1979. And yet it has survived. And not only has it survived, but it has made great progress. So we need to ask that question as to what is it that has enabled Iran to be able to not only survive, to, but to be able to make such impressive progress uh, despite all of these challenges all of these, and all of these hurdles that it has faced. Yeah, that's re it is striking that a country that's under such concerted attack by the world's dominant powers, and indeed uh, for its first decade plus, was under attack by both of the superpower blocs, really. Uh, just more intense attack from the Western one, but also the Soviet Union actually helped uh, Iraq uh, fight Iran in the imposed war of the 1980s. So they've really been standing against the world in a lot of ways, and yet today it, it doesn't look like a country that's been terribly damaged. I mean, sure, it's got economic problems like so many other countries, but uh, I was I just got back and once again I'm really struck mainly by how vibrant it is uh, how relatively clean compared to large American cities how economically it, it, it my sense is that it's comparable to Turkey which is one of the more advanced countries in the region 
and it's done all of this and built uh, amazing uh, you know, rockets, has this amazing space program, and all sorts of other uh, technological advances, as well as advances in education and infrastructure. It's done all of this while basically being targeted by a, a nonstop uh, war by the world's biggest powers. So that seems to be a pretty impressive accomplishment. Oh, absolutely. Uh, and I'm glad that you mentioned uh, that you were there recently. Um, and you would have noticed that um, when you travel from Imam Khomeini International Airport, where visitors arrive, and driving into the city, into Tehran, uh, the impressive highways, uh, as you mentioned, they are very clean, their roads are clean, their streets are clean, uh, unlike uh, most American cities, which look like garbage dumps. Uh, in Iran, people have this sense of civic duty and civic responsibility, and they keep their cities uh, very clean. And uh, I've visited it many times, and when one visits during the night, we, we find that there are people constantly cleaning the streets. The cleaning crews are out. They are washing the streets, and they are very uh, aesthetically landscaped. Uh, the Iranians are absolutely, you know, brilliant in aesthetics. They they really do a wonderful job, uh, and and they are able to, you know, I know that there are parts there were back in the 1980s. There were parts of uh, Tehran where um, the the mountains, uh, because Tehran is in a valley, the mountains were barren. And now they have been turned into completely green mountains. They have planted trees. They have planted flowers and shrubs and so on. And this work goes on all the time. Uh, so you, any time that a person uh, visits uh, Iran, particularly Tehran, although not confined to Tehran alone, other cities are equally impressive. Uh, but one notices uh, tremendous development taking place. Uh, I'm sure you must have noticed that there are, you know, when you go to Tehran, you see cranes everywhere. You would see highways crisscrossing the city from north to south, east to west, etc. And um, although I, I'd say I have one complaint, and I've mentioned this to um, some of the uh, decision makers over there, uh, that they are actually... Uh, allowing too many cars on the roads, and that's not terribly good. That's, uh, that's my, that's my no matter main how complaint, many, too. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, you know, once I was um, uh, in, in Tehran, and I was um, with some friends, some university, they were university professors, we were driving in the car, and of course, we were stuck in traffic. And we were discussing um, the, the issue of, or the the threat of America uh, attacking Iran. I said, don't worry about it. America will never attack Iran. They said, how can you be so sure? I said, well, look, we are stuck here in the traffic. If the Americans were to come here, they would also be stuck in the traffic. Where the hell would they go? <laughs> so, you know, don't worry. Don't worry about it. <laughs> They're not going to do that. So, you know, and then I mentioned to them that I think you have too much traffic here. No matter what time of the day or night you get on the road or the highways, you find you know, just absolute bumper-to-bumper -bumper traffic. And this is, of course, extremely uh, packed in the morning when people are going to work and then starting from 3 p.m. onwards when people are coming back from work, and it goes on for hours and hours and hours. And so 
that's something that I think definitely the leadership in Iran needs to pay attention to. Well, I told them they should should make a deal with China and bring in Chinese engineers to uh, expand the Tehran uh, subway, which is actually a really great subway, but it it needs to be greatly expanded if they're going to help solve the traffic problem. Exactly. Or or, uh, at the same time, they could probably consider uh, developing a monorail running over the highways, etc., so that uh, they can uh, provide more uh, public transportation uh, to the people uh, and and uh, prevent so many cars from traveling into the city. But that's one aspect of it. The other, I think, which we definitely need to touch on is the uh, the rate of progress that uh, Iran has made despite these horrendous sanctions. And one has to admit that naturally the sanctions have had a negative impact on the livelihood of people. Uh, Any other country would have collapsed a long time ago, uh, but not the Islamic Republic of Iran. Despite these sanctions, Iran has made impressive gains in knowledge-based technology. It has made impressive gains in drone technology, in missile technology, in space technology, I mean, even UNESCO itself in its 2021 report uh, admitted that Iran had made 500% progress uh, in its knowledge-based and innovative uh, enterprises in the country. There is a uh, government policy whereby uh, such uh, activities are encouraged uh, there are loans made available to such enterprises. And I'd also like to point out that um, uh, the people of Iran, by and large, are extremely uh, good at uh, mathematics. Uh, you know, people like uh, Omar Khayyam and others, they were brilliant mathematicians. Uh, you know, Ibn Sina, uh, in the West they refer to him as Avicina. Uh, Ibn Sina, of course, was uh, an Iranian um, doctor, and uh, his book, Kanun al-Tib, uh, the book of medicine, uh, used to be used in medical colleges around the world for something like 500 years. And many of the medical instruments that Ibn Sina developed are still being used in advanced uh, hospitals uh, around the world exactly the same design. So you see that uh, Iran has a very, very rich history of uh, development in in science and mathematics and medicine, etc. And uh, Iranians today have continued that tradition. Uh, They are extremely, extremely, uh, you know, smart in in math and in electronics. That is what has enabled them to develop such uh, impressive technologies. You know, um, I'm not sure whether your listeners would recall, but in December of 2011, uh, Iranian uh, scientists, uh, and they were able to overpower an American RQ-170 Sentinel drone plane that was flying over Iran and spying, and they were able to overpower its uh, electronic systems, uh, took over control, and safely 
landed uh, that uh, drone plane in Iran. And then, I actually I saw that Earth. plane. I was at the Aerospace Museum just about five days ago and got to see it. I'm glad. I'm glad you did, and and I'm glad that you didn't ask for it to be returned. To, <laughs> no, Ob- to Obama the US. asked for it back, and they didn't give it to him, and so I figured I might as well give yeah, it. Yeah, so know, many I, times he kept. They wouldn't give it to Obama. <laughs> <laughs> they wouldn't give it to me. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and and so you see that you know uh, as, as a consequence of that fantastic uh, operation that uh, the Iranian scientists carried out. And then they did reverse engineering, and they have, of course, uh, on their own, they have been able to develop these drones, these Shahid uh, drones that they have developed, uh, which, incidentally, you know, Iran is able to produce uh, these drones at the at the cost of about $20,000 apiece, whereas um, when America and other countries want to shoot it, they have to use a missile that costs about a million dollars, so you can see the difference in costs. And, and that's why, you know, so many countries, at least 20 or 26 countries around the world have uh, expressed uh, the desire to buy these drones. Uh, and, and Russia has also bought these drones, and there are plans to buy more. In fact, there are discussions going on for uh, Iran and between Iran and Russia to set up a factory in Russia where these drones would be produced uh, in Russia uh, so you can see that, uh, you know, in, in this, this technological field, Iran's gains have been absolutely phenomenal. Uh, you know, I recall um, some years ago, uh, there used to be constant um, Western uh, regimes, demands that nobody should sell weapons to Iran, even though that restriction had been lifted uh, through the JCPOA agreement uh, back it, it ended in, in October of 2018. And now there are demands that uh, nobody should buy weapons from Iran. So previously it was said, don't sell weapons to Iran. Now they are saying, don't buy weapons from Iran. And that indicates the, the, the kind of progress that Iran has made in terms of uh, its uh, technological progress. The Americans seem really worried about the drones that Iran is selling to Russia. Yes, of course. They are, you see, uh, I mean, when you look at it, it's so incredible that um, America has provided something like $105 billion to, to Ukraine since uh, February of uh, 2022, and even prior to that, I mean, we all know that whatever is happening in Ukraine now cannot be, uh, we cannot start this discussion in February of 2022. Uh, this discussion has to go back to 2014, what is referred to as uh, the Maidan coup, which was basically Victoria Noland, another of these right-wingers in the United States that engineered a coup against a democratically elected government in Ukraine. And there are, you know, leaks now of telephone conversations between uh, Noland and the American ambassador in Kiev, whereby they're discussing, you know, who they should um, install in power in Kiev. And when the American ambassador talked about, you know, consulting the Europeans, uh, Noland, in her typical, you know, vulgar style, she said, screw the, uh, the Europeans. We will decide who's going to... Uh, ruled uh, Ukraine. And, and this, this person, Zelensky, who, who now trots around the world 
presenting himself as a champion of the Ukrainian people. He's so bloody corrupt. Ukraine is such a corrupt society. I mean, you know, they're, they're absolute thieves. And, and I think probably that explains why uh, the Americans are so fond of them, because, you know, Biden's son himself was uh, involved in these um, corruption scandals in Ukraine. And so you, when you have a, a bunch of corrupt uh, people in the United States, uh, and then you have a bunch of corrupt people in Ukraine, uh, they, they make for, you know, uh, a, a very, very good uh, partners. Uh, you know, Zelensky's father has actually bought a house in Israel for $8 million. And one needs to ask, where the hell did he get that money from? Uh, you know, you know, last uh, a couple of weeks ago, about five top officials in Ukraine were sacked because they were involved in corruption. And when this scandal about corruption sort of, you know, spread and it, it gained traction, then uh, the Ukrainian regime had to do something in order to divert attention. So they said, well, we have sacked five officials, including the deputy defense minister and other people, because they were involved in corruption. But um, Zelensky, Zelensky himself is thoroughly corrupt, and, and the country is actually uh, run by neo-Nazis. Uh, and yet, you know, we hear this nonsensical claim that America is trying to, uh, you know, promote democracy in Ukraine. There is no democracy. It's a, there, it's, these are neo-Nazis that are running the country. And, and Zephyr, uh, do you find have, it do you find it strange that these neo Nazis were organized, funded, and weaponized by Jewish oligarchs? Yes, exactly. Um, even Zelensky himself. Uh, so you see that uh, you know uh, we we keep on hearing about uh, you know these these um, uh, Zionists complaining about uh, you know the Holocaust and anti Semitism. And yet the Zionists themselves are in bed with these fascist elements and these neo-Nazis uh, and fascists. And so that exposes their fraud that they perpetrate. Uh, they have essentially weaponized uh, anti-Semitism uh, in order to uh, browbeat anybody who dares to shed light on the nefarious agenda of the Zionists in terms of uh, promoting and working with the neo-Nazis. Right here in the United States, uh, you know, people like Daniel Pipes, he was working um, with, um, you know, this, this uh, British, uh, uh, the, there's a fascist party in, in Britain, uh, and, and uh, you know, the, the person who was um, running it, uh, he was an absolute racist and bigot. It was that and yet, Tommy Robinson the, you're referring to? Tommy, Rob, Tommy yeah. Robinson, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, when, when uh, you know, uh, this fellow, uh, Daniel Pipes, was asked, and of course, Daniel Pipes' funds came from these rich Jewish, uh, you know, uh, families in the United States, as to why you have paid him $369,000. And he said, well, he was doing research for us. And it is a neo-Nazi that Daniel Pipes was financing through the money, the funds that he had received from rich uh, you know, Jewish families in the United States. Didn't one of Tommy Robinson's lieutenants or, or you know, people working with him uh, ended up blowing the whistle on that and, and say, you know, describing how they'd had to make an agreement to attack Muslims, but to never attack Israel, to always support Israel. That's correct. Yes, exactly. Now, so that, that indicates the depth of their um, alliance with these really, really uh, racist elements. Uh, and, and of course, as you mentioned, this whole 
agenda is geared towards attacking Muslims, but not attacking or exposing the crimes that Israel is committing. So we see that there is a, a lot of you know, underhand uh, activity going on that needs to be talked about, that needs to be brought to the surface, so that the American people become aware of what you know, is, is being done in their name and how uh, they are being manipulated. I mean, what, one of the things that I really find uh, extremely depressing is that uh, in the United States, which has the largest economy in the world, you find something like 38 to 40 million people living in absolute poverty. Uh, the American, the entire American infrastructure is actually crumbling. There are more than, uh, I believe I was checking these statistics from the uh, American Society of Civil Engineers, and there are, I think, something like 60 or 65,000 American bridges that are unsafe to travel on. That's their, uh, you know, estimate. Uh, in fact, America's water system is crumbling. Uh, you know, in, in the northwest uh, of the United States, it would take uh, $2 billion to replace the water pipes because they are uh, so old and they are now, the, the water that uh, pipes through them uh, is unsafe for drinking. It's even worse in southern United States where, of course, uh, you know, a lot of the poor people live. These are basically African-Americans that dominate that region. Uh, the water system is even worse. The same applies to uh, southwest of the United States. So you see that America's infrastructure, whether it is roads, bridges, water pipes, sewers, etc. Uh, you know, we had this, this case in Flint, Michigan a few years ago. Uh, the, the water, the tap water was basically brown and that showed the amount of uh, lead that was coming through the water. It was impossible to, like, you know, you can't even boil that water and drink it because you simply cannot purify it. And that's still not been fixed. And so you can see that while America's infrastructure is crumbling, its own people are suffering, American uh, oligarchs that control uh, the government keep on pumping billions upon billions of dollars for wars all around the world, whether it's in Ukraine or other parts of the world, and uh, they continue to target the Islamic Republic of Iran. Uh, and, and I want to point out that the reason why they are targeting the Islamic Republic of Iran is because fundamentally Iran has become uh, genuinely independent. I don't think there is any other country in the world that is uh, as independent and as determined to maintain its independence, as is Iran. And so that is the, the, the kind of uh, uh, development that uh, American oligarchs uh, do not accept, and that's why they are subjecting Iran to so much pressure. Of course, it, it's also, there's also the additional fact that Iran is um, a major producer of oil and gas, and also it is very rich in minerals. Iran produces uh, gold. I think it's the seventh largest producer in the world. It produces uh, uranium and all kinds of other uh, precious metals. Uh, in fact, even heavy metals it is producing. So you see that as a country, uh, Iran offers a lot in terms of uh, its natural resources. And that is something that uh, the American oligarchs cannot stomach because they want to bring all of these resources under their own control. Just like Russia.
Yes, exactly. Right. So uh, isn't maybe the, the number one issue in terms of the U.S. enmity towards Iran and this ongoing war on Iran, the Iran's steadfast support of Palestine? I've, I've spoken to some Iranians who believe that, and I think they've largely convinced me that that's the case, that the, normally American strategists would not want to try to fight Russia, China, and Iran all at the same time. And the first country that they would want to actually try to make friends with and break off from that uh, three-part coalition would be Iran, because Iran is not really a potential peer competitor. It's kind of one, just one step below that in, uh, as compared to Russia and China. And it's got that strategic location, and it has a history of conflict with Russia. Russia has encroached on Iran, Iran's territory over the past few centuries. So given all of that, a sane uh, American geostrategy would be to try to get along with Iran and even make win-win deals and allow Iran to be independent and uh, sort of charm it into being friendly to the U.S. And that would, of course, make it harder for China and, and for Russia uh, to uh, cause any sort of trouble for the U.S. But uh, because the Zionist oligarchs are so powerful in the U.S., they have hijacked American policy and taken it in a direction that's not even beneficial for the American imperialists. Uh, and that extreme hostility to Iran really can only be explained by this power of Zionism in the United States. Would you agree with that analysis? Oh, absolutely. I think that's uh, really uh, a very, very important point. And on a number of occasions, uh, American emissaries have even communicated this to Iran, that uh, or the leadership in Iran uh, or its officials, that if you were to give up uh, your hostility to the Zionist state of Israel, stop your support for these uh, liberation movements, uh, in whether it's in Palestine, in Syria, Iraq, Yemen, etc., that uh, that you know, then the United States would be able to uh, make a deal with you, and it would be a win-win for everybody. Uh, of course, the Islamic Republic of Iran has stood on this issue as a matter of principle, and they are not budging on it because they see the Zionist regime as an illegal entity that has been imposed on Palestine uh, against the wishes of the people, and so Iran continues to support them. And that is uh, that has been Iran's position from day one. Uh, in fact, Imam Khomeini repeatedly, even before the, the victory of the Islamic Revolution, uh, he used to talk about this, uh, both uh, the uh, U.S. regime as well as the Zionist regime, and he referred to uh, the Zionist regime as a major threat to the Muslim world. And, if, you know, you would recall that as soon as the uh, Islamic Revolution succeeded, the first foreign official uh, who was welcomed in Tehran was Yasser Arafat. And uh, Imam Khomeini even met him, although, unfortunately, Yasser Arafat turned out to be a complete clown. Uh, he, he really didn't have any depth. He was just sort of, you know... In, in typical, um, you know, Arab fashion, he was just all rhetoric and no and little substance, and that was extremely painful for the Islamic Republic of Iran. But even so, 
Um, they, they shut down the, the Zionist embassy in Tehran. They handed over the keys of that embassy to the Palestinians who opened their embassy. And it was not until another uh, perhaps six, seven years after that when uh, Hamas and Islamic Jihad emerged in Palestine that the Palestinian movement actually got on the right track in order to be able to resist uh, Zionist occupation. So the point that you make is correct that uh, they, it's the Zionist uh, lobby and their stranglehold on the political system in the United States that uh, prevents uh, America uh, from uh, making uh, a deal with Iran. But I think Iran, there is also this awareness and understanding in Iran that um, the U.S. is simply not capable of fulfilling any agreement. So they have now wisened up to this point, and they, they have no illusions that uh, even if they were to make a deal with the U.S. and they sign it, that they will not honor it, and Iran knows that. And the clearest example of that is the uh, nuclear deal, or JCPOA, as it is called, uh, that was signed in, in July of 2015 and came into effect in 2016. And within two years, you know, the Americans tore it up. And, and uh, you know, they are, uh, and, and some of the arguments that they are using uh, in order to revive that deal is, uh, and again, it ties into the point that you raised about uh, Israel, that uh, the Americans are saying that, well, you know, Iran has to curb its missile technology. It must stop supporting these uh, quote-unquote terrorist groups because uh, any liberation movement that wants to gain uh, their rights uh, are immediately branded as uh, terrorist organizations by the United States. And so we can see that uh, for the United States, uh, with its policy uh, hijacked by the Zionists, that it's the interests of Zionist Israel that takes precedence over the interests of the United States itself. Uh, that, that's right. And so the U.S. is really waging its hybrid war against Iran largely on behalf of the Zionist entity, it seems. And that war seems to be ramping up. I uh, attended a very couple of interesting talks while I was in Iran, by, uh, let's see, there was Dr. Fuad Izadi, uh, who's a professor at the University of Tehran, who gave a very interesting talk, as well as Dr. Mustafa Khosheshm, who's apparently a strategic analyst. And they uh, discussed how this, this so-called hybrid war has been ramped up to try to force the Iranians to basically surrender by accepting a new nuclear deal that's, that's no longer the nuclear deal. The nuclear deal was supposed to be just about nuclear issues, and Iran did comply with that and greatly hinder its its own nuclear program. And then, of course, Trump tore up that deal. Biden came back into office. You would think that he would just revive the original JCPOA, but instead he is insisting that they change the deal so that Iran would only get three years of sanction relief uh, before they would then have to reconsider based on Iran's uh, doing these things that the Americans want them to do that have nothing to do with the nuclear issue, that is, with, you know, with rockets and, and regional allies and such. 
And so that three years isn't going to help Iran because no corporations are going to go into Iran and invest if they only have three years. So uh, Iran has been willing to go back to the original nuclear deal. It only focuses on the nuclear issues, but the Americans aren't. So it seems that Biden is actually complicit in this move by Trump to tear up the deal. And it really raises questions about whether that original deal was even sincere in the first place. But so meanwhile, now the Americans are waging a multi-pronged hybrid war on Iran with their color revolution riots, their, their, you know, fake uh, Iran revolts or these revolts against the leadership and uh, all kinds of terrorism, assassinations, uh, funding terrorist groups, cyber wars, uh, attacking the currency and on and on and on. And what was really uh, interesting, what we never hear much in the West, but what I heard from these experts in Tehran, was that Iran has been responding in tit-for-tat fashion to a lot of these attacks and provocations. Like we we all heard about when the Zionists uh, murdered the this uh, leading uh, rocket scientist, Mohsen uh, Fakhrizadeh, but we didn't hear much about the retaliation when uh, Iran managed to take out the founder of Israel's rocket program, Abi Harivan. Uh, so it seems that the media in the West is r- giving us this drumbeat of, oh, poor Iran is being attacked all the time, and there are all these Iranians re- revolting against their government. The government's about to fall. It reminds me of the propaganda, actually, against Russia, uh, that Russia is always about to lose to Ukraine. Uh, and it's equally mendacious. <laughs> so, so anyway, that, I thought that was interesting because the nobody in the West ever publicized this that kind of retaliation, or you know, the, in the ship war, the tit for tat uh, fighting in the, with the Israelis and Americans grabbing Iranian ships or ships with just supposedly having Iranian oil, and then the Iranians uh, responded. And uh, these uh, Tehran these sources, these Tehran sources that I spoke with say that Iran has successfully responded against this hybrid war, and the hybrid war has has stalled. And now the question becomes, will the Americans and Zionists accelerate uh, uh, this hybrid war? Will they, or will they you know, really escalate it seriously? What might they do? But Iran feels that it has the capability to respond at every possible level of escalation. So that's not a perspective that we hear very much here in the West. Exactly, because uh, you see, um, in the West, uh, they, uh, the media, the, the opinion makers, and the decision makers, etc., including in the Zionist Israel, uh, they always uh, want to project this macho image that they can do whatever they like in the world and nobody can challenge them. And yet, um, Iran is uh, among the few countries uh, that is able to retaliate tit for tat, although Iran has never uh, initiated aggression against anybody, but it knows how to defend itself, and it has done so very successfully. Uh, you know, as, as you pointed out, and, you know, with respect to this um, nuclear deal, which is now, as you said, no longer about the nuclear issue, um, only two days ago, uh, they they chief of uh, the International Atomic Energy Agency, Rafael Grossi, who's supposed to be a technocrat and should confine his remarks to technical issues. And yet he was speaking in Israel where, you know, he never raised the issue of 
Israel's nuclear weapons, uh, which are illegal under international law. And yet he was talking about saying that it is very important that we contain Iran's uh, nuclear program, whether it is under the JCPOA or any other means, but we have to contain it and we have to prevent Iran from uh, enriching uranium beyond the 3% that was allowed in the original deal. And as you pointed out, that now they are talking about uh, you know, sanctions relief only for a limited period of time, and then they go back to uh, you know, the same point and they reimpose sanctions. In fact, sanctions were never lifted against Iran even after that agreement was signed. Although publicly Obama said with his you know, broad smile grinning from year to year, showing his white teeth that now we had signed a historic agreement, whereas his Treasury Secretary privately was threatening American, uh, sorry, European companies and banks to not deal with Iran. And that's why we found that even though uh, that nuclear agreement was signed, no European uh, corporation, no European company, no European bank was willing to deal with Iran because of the threat that they had received from uh, the, the American Treasury Secretary. So you see that the Americans, unfortunately, are simply not capable of uh, fulfilling their part of the deal at all. And you rightly pointed out, you know, Biden is continuing uh, Trump's policy, although throughout his uh, election campaign in 2020, he was saying that that was, you know, it was a terrible mistake to tear up the agreement. And um, when I come back or when I come to power, I will restore that agreement, etc. And now we are, uh, you know, two years down the road and yet nothing has happened. In fact, that agreement seems to be totally dead there is nothing to revive. And, and now they are making other demands, uh, not only other demands, but uh, continuing with this hybrid war against Iran, we're talking about, you know, these nonsensical claims that, you know, the, the women in Iran are oppressed, etc. Uh, you know, the, the West has a very strange uh, notion of uh, women's rights. Since the Second World War, women have been grossly exploited, their um, physical presence out in the field is needed because they need more and more hands to run their factories. They're paid uh, less money to women uh, than they do to men. Uh, you know, the United States has never had a, a female president in its entire history. Uh, you know, there are very few, uh, you know, female uh, members of Congress or cabinet. When you look at Iran, uh, in Iran, 30% of university professors are females. 60% uh, of the students in Iran's universities are women or girls. Now, how, how is that that, you know, a country like Iran, which is supposed to be suppressing its women, uh, has such a high percentage of women uh, in the universities, or that it has 30% uh, of its uh, professors that are uh, women? or that it has, uh, you know, in many fields, particularly in, in the teaching profession, in medicine, in nursing, etc., women far outnumber uh, the men. So, you know, this whole notion that somehow women are oppressed because there are a few misguided women that don't want to adhere to the Islamic dress code is completely 
uh, off base. Uh, what has never been mentioned is that the hundreds of thousands of women that have come out in support of uh, this this Islamic dress uh, of hijab uh, has never been reported in the West, or very very you know superficially. There is there is no mention of it, and in fact, when you see these rioters who went around burning buildings, burning banks, blowing up mosques, uh, attacking ambulances, killing policemen in the streets, and and yet uh, you know the Americans and the Western media and others keep on talking about you know supporting these Iranians that uh, that want uh, their freedoms. Uh, you know that's a complete completely nonsensical. Uh, allegation, uh, and I think you know this. This intensification of hybrid war against Iran is a clear admission that all of the policies that the United States and its uh, so-called NATO allies, in fact NATO puppets, and Zionist Israel have pursued over the last 44 years have failed against Iran. They have not brought Iran to its knees. Instead, Iran has made tremendous progress. It continues to hold its head high. It continues to make great progress in many fields. Uh, and that is what really uh, not only um, you know, worries these, these uh, regimes, but terrifies them because Iran sets an example for other countries. And we can see its impact and influence even in South America now, countries like Venezuela are now standing up to the U.S. and are able to, uh, you know, challenge uh, American uh, demands. Uh, other countries in, in South America as well, uh, and, and the rest of the world also. So it seems that, uh, you know, the policies, uh, the hybrid war that the U.S. is waging against Iran is not getting anywhere. And... Uh, I'm absolutely confident that Iran will continue to make progress. It will continue to serve the interests of its people and not the interests of the American oligarchs or the Zionist blackmailers. Yeah, I, I think that's right. Uh, and when I was there, I, I noticed something interesting, which is that uh, it turns out that about five months ago, in order to try to sort of take the edge off of this propaganda appeal by the people that are waging this uh, this war, hybrid war on Iran uh, to the very small minority of Iranians who are who don't like the Islamic dress code. So they, they the Iranian government uh, put out uh, changed the policy and essentially uh, took away the you know, pulled back the uh, police element of the police forces that used to enforce the dress code. And of course, when they enforced it, they enforced it generally very gently. You know, it, it, the kind of the worst thing that you would ever get really would be a traffic ticket. Um, and every time I've been to Iran over you know, since 2013, there are plenty of women who are really, you know, call it, pushing the whole notion of, of bad hijab <laughs> to, to, you know, up in North Tehran, a small minority of women are showing most of their hair and have been, and not, they haven't been harassed for it. But now the government does not issue any tickets at all. So now essentially it's, it's totally decriminalized and any woman in Iran who wants to not wear hijab can do that. But, uh, as it turns out, there aren't that many who don't want to wear hijab because in in the well in the airport, 
maybe about five, you know, maximum maybe 7%, I would say, were not wearing hijab in the streets, uh, more like 1% or 2% at the most. So clearly the vast majority are have no problem with hijab, and it's a very, very small minority that don't want to wear it. And now the government has essentially said, yeah, okay, it's not, it's not worth, you know, giving the Western, uh, you know, these warmongers a chance to try to, you know, come up with an excuse to weaponize these small demonstrations. And Zafar, I, did, I never got this from the, the information we see here, but I think the biggest uh, of these demonstrations was only about 600 people or something like that. But the problem is that the trained uh, saboteurs and the Operation Gladio types turn these demonstrations into uh, into riots, and then they actually shoot people on both sides. They shoot police, they shoot protesters, and they try to do it in such a way that each side blames the other. Of course, that's how they got the problem going in Maidan Square in Ukraine and how they instigated the civil war in Syria. But it seems that it's not working in Iran. Yes, exactly. Um, and and. You know, the, the way that uh, the Islamic Republic uh, handled this situation was uh, with great finesse, great sophistication. Uh, they did not, uh, even when these uh, saboteurs and rioters went on a rampage, um, they were, uh, you know, they, uh, the ones that were creating uh, problems were isolated from the other people. And in fact, there were women uh, in those demonstrations, when they saw these acts of sabotage, they separated themselves from these demonstrations because they said that that's not what we want. Uh, and as you said, um, this um, uh, there, there is something called, um, uh, you know, they, they, what they were referring to as morality police. That's a mistranslation. There's actually, you know, uh, uh, it, it's called, in Farsi, it's called Gashte uh, Irshad, and it's a guidance squad. Uh, and, and as you pointed out, uh, the police would, you know, the, the worst thing that would happen is that the police would give a ticket to somebody, just like a traffic ticket. And um, very often they would simply give them a warning if they found that uh, the women were not dressed properly. But... Um, you know, the government has even withdrawn these powers of the police. And so if, let's say, uh, this was such a big issue, then, you know, millions of women in Iran would have taken off the hijab because there is no more, uh, you know, the gashte um, irshad, uh, you know, around issuing tickets. And yet that has not happened. There is, of course, in every society, there would be people that would not adhere to uh, the rules. Uh, you know, everywhere in the West, for instance, um, you know, uh, there, there are laws against uh, drunk driving, but that has not stopped people from, you know, driving while drunk, uh, and, and, and the police give them tickets. Uh, there, there are rules uh, against uh, over-speeding. That has not prevented people from over speeding, uh, you know, there will always be people that would violate the laws in, in one way or another. And so, um, you know, the, the, in that sense, uh, I think Iran has handled this situation very well and has diffused the situation by simply withdrawing uh, the powers of the police to uh, enforce the hijab. 
And as I said, um, it hasn't led to millions of Iranian women taking off the hijab uh, because hijab is part of their religious belief and practice as well as part of their culture. And I don't think the West has any right to dictate to any other country as to how people should dress. Uh, you know, I, I recall, I mean, you know, I, I'm no fan of the Taliban, but um, uh, a, a Western reporter was uh, interviewing one of the Taliban officials about, uh, you know, the Taliban forcing women to wear the burqa, etc. And he pointed out, he said, you know, what about your countries? Don't you have any restrictions on women? So this woman reporter said, no, we don't have any restrictions. He said, well, do they walk around naked in the street? So the woman said, no. He said, why not? He said, well, that's not allowed. So, you know, he said, well, look, so that, that means that there is, uh, there are some restrictions in your societies as well. So it's simply a matter of the degree of restrictions. It's not as if, you know, women in, in the West can walk around naked. Although, regrettably, the manner in which women are exploited for every possible, in every possible way, for instance, they aren't able to sell a car without a scantily clad woman sitting on the front or standing in front of it. Uh, you know, the, the, the catwalks on which women are forced to walk and, and, and the way women are forced to sort of keep themselves slim in order to look attractive, etc. All of these are very, very degrading acts. The hijab removes all of these conditions because the woman's body is sacred. Muslims consider the woman's body to be sacred, to be respected, and not to be um, looked at by lecherous men, uh, always thinking about evil deeds uh, and, and exploiting women in, in this manner. So there are all kinds of you know, unfortunate uh, you know, um, ways in which women are being exploited in the West, and yet uh, you know, the, the West rushes to demand that other countries and other cultures should accept uh, their cultural norms, which are constantly changing anyway. So, you know, as far as Muslims are concerned, they have their own value system. Uh, it is working perfectly fine, uh, and they don't need to get any lessons from anybody else with respect to their cultural values. Well, I think the West is hardly in a position to be lecturing other parts of the world about manners and morals, given the sorts of things that are going on here. With, uh, uh, with I won't get into the, all the details of this, uh, the transgender, LGBTQ, XYZ, uh, you know, children being uh, mutilated and uh, schools brainwashing children into thinking they belong to the other gender and then the, the drag queens come in and read to them <laughs> drag queen story hour. And I think most of the world really doesn't want this. Uh, and it's not just the Muslim Exactly. The, that's right. The world is sick of these things. I mean, you know, they're saying, what is, what is this nonsense? You've got this, you know, uh, gender alphabet soup that you are pushing uh, down people's throats. I mean, it was, you know, a, a few months ago, it was so laughable that, you know, uh, in, in Florida, uh, although I'm no fan of uh, the governor of Florida, but he basically uh, rejected this curriculum that was being imposed on young children starting from age five uh, about this LGBTQ plus whatever, you know, all these other, other alphabets, etc. And, uh, you know, in, in Boston, 
Uh, we, we only have about 30 seconds now. Yeah, and the Boston school superintendents went to schools and told young children, five, six years old, that if they wanted to protest in support of their, uh, you know, students, LGBTQ students, etc., in Florida, you are free to come out and protest and you will be let go of the classes. Can you imagine the idiotic sort of conduct of these people? Unbelievable. Well, no, no wonder Iran and lots of other countries would rather keep their own manners and morals, thank you, rather than taking on these ones. Well, thank you so much, uh, Zafar Pangash. I love talking with you, catching up with you, and uh, that was a great conversation. So, very much thank you. Thank you, Kevin. Appreciate it. Okay, take care. Take care. Thank you for listening to Revolution.